You're listening to highlights from One Planet Podcast's interview with Bruce Mao, founder and CEO of the Massive Change Network. You have to go all the way. Like you have to do the real thing. And you know, you, you can't solve half the problem. You really need to think about it holistically. We disconnected ourselves from the living world. And we have this beautiful quotation from David Orr. He's an environmentalist and teacher. And he said, you know, can we imagine education that doesn't dominate nature? And I think it's, you know, the jury's out. Like we have to actually reconceive it. We have to think about the living world that we're part of. And, you know, what I found so interesting working in Sudbury at this architecture school that I'm part of is at the McEwen school is that the McEwen school is a collaboration between French, English, and indigenous leaders. And so I've been on the board now for several years and I was going up there and working with these folks. And I discovered that the indigenous folks have a different cosmology. They don't put humans at the center. They put life at the center. And one of the guys said, we think that we're related to the rocks and the grasses, yeah. which is actually what E.O. Wilson said, right? E.O. Wilson said, rock is slow life and life is fast rock. So here you have the greatest life scientist in the last half century saying the same thing as the indigenous cosmologist, right? So the spiritual cosmology and the science are coming to the same place, which for me really, I mean, when I realized that I thought, wow, this is just an incredible, incredible situation that you have, you know, the science and the spirituality coming to the same place. And that's what life-centered design is really about. It really to kind of put life into the center of the way that we think. If you walked into practically any design university in the world today, any design school, we teach human-centered design. And as Julio Tino said, you're not going to solve climate change with human-centered design. You can make humans as happy as can be, but you know, like the happiest humans in the world are not going to make climate change better. You have to think outside of humans. But we still, the dominant, really the only teaching happening in design is human-centered design. It's the only model. And so we put the human back into the center of Copernicus's model. Copernicus said, no, 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 it's not all about us. And we spent the last several hundred years proving them wrong. It's like, no, we insist on, you know, it's that it's all about us. And it's not, it's actually about life. And we're going to have to get that into the model. So imagine a city about life, how different that would be, right? Imagine a living city. It goes back to that being lost, training yourself to be lost. And it seems like one of the great challenges, not just for a designer, but just for everyone. You know, that is a big, big idea. I'm very, very concerned that we are already in a time of being lost, that a lot of people feel lost. And they feel like the world has kind of moved out from under them and that they have lost their bearings. They've lost their anchor and they don't have what it takes to actually navigate. And in that kind of environment, it's a very rich environment for fascism and for the worst kind of political movement, you know, the worst kind of political actors to take advantage of that feeling of 
powerlessness and fear and disconnection. And design is a methodology that is an empowering methodology within a condition of being unmoored. So when you don't know what to do, design is a methodology of figuring out what to do. So it's a very important empowerment tool. And it's why we're doing a project that we call Massive Action, which is to really give people the tools of empowerment, to give them the power to design their life. Because over the coming couple of decades, people are going to see a level of turmoil and change that has not happened in human history. We have to change practically everything. I mean, practically everything that we do, you know, the foundation of our society is our energy system. The foundation of any culture is energy. And we have to change fundamentally our source of energy, which is going to change everything else. So every tool that we use, every vehicle, every system, every, everything we plug in or charge up or <laughs> anything, everything that we do has to change. And people are going to go through a level of turmoil and conflict and disconnection that hasn't happened before. And I really worry that it's going to be a time and we're already seeing it. It's going to be a time where the forces of autocracy and totalitarianism and fascism will find fertile ground. If we don't actually help people navigate those conditions. Well, cities is certainly a great place to start because the way that we do them, I mean, you can see just, if you go up in an airplane and look down, you can see that they're built against nature. I mean, you could just look at it and see it in the color of the city, you know, that they're built. And it's interesting. It's, we reflected it in our maps. Cities are gray and the rest of the world is green. Right? And, you know, we build them against the natural world and the way that we do it. Concrete is one of the worst environmental materials we could use. And we have no intention at the moment of changing that. And we're going to add roughly two more billion people, almost all of whom will live in cities. I mean, the scale of that problem is absolutely staggering. And we intend to put them in buildings. No one I've found is, is willing to say, no, actually, you got to stay outside. No, we're going to put them in buildings and we're going to build about half the world again. Uh, to accommodate it. And so all of that has to change. And the good news is that there's huge effort being made, huge innovation projects all over the world. It seems to me like a great challenge of designers now is in order to implement the, as you say, our existential crisis and in order to implement the norms and regulations and consistent reusable fabrication elements that one might need to have a true circular economy and all those things, we might have to, like nature, sacrifice some of our individuality to work more collectively. How do you come to terms with that? Maybe taking away some of the individuality of design in order to have something that we can all use and reuse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that it's a, it's a really good question. You know, I think Freud talked about the narcissism of small differences. And I think that is a kind of 
favorite place for design. <laughs> you know, I mean, designers, designers, you know, set up shop there and make a living on that idea. Who cares? Who cares about that? Let's concentrate on the big problems, the big issues. There's an unlimited number of problems. You know, you can dedicate your life to the big problems and have absolutely no possibility of exhausting them. <laughs> and, um, you know, you could never run out. So, you know, let's not worry about whether you're making, you know, whether you need to make the bottles a slightly different shape. Let's focus on the big things. And really, we are going to need to have some agreements on the little things, which turn out to be the big things. Right? Because when you get billions of us doing these little things, they turn into the big things. So, you know, let's just get to some agreements on those things so we can focus on the big things and really make a difference because those little things really don't matter. You know, I don't really care if those little things, if I still get to do those, it's inconsequential if I get to live and all the other species get to live too. If I get to have, you know, my little expressive moment, but I kill life on the planet, you know, like what universe does that make sense in? I don't start knowing what to do. I start trying to understand what the opportunity is. And it was actually my friend, Mark Mathieu, who was the head of global brand at Coca-Cola, who, after we did, I built the global sustainability platform for Coca-Cola. And after we finished the work, Mark said, you know, Bruce, the best thing you did, you didn't charge me for it. You didn't tell me you were going to do it. I don't know if you even know that you did it. And I said, tell me what I, please, please tell me. And he called it branding the opportunity. And I said, you know, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, you were able to articulate the opportunity in a way that inspired everyone on the team to move in the same direction. And he said, when, you know, before you arrived, we had 150 people pointing 150 directions. And the way that you were able to see the problem and articulate the opportunity and what would happen if we accomplished it, the impact that we could have in the world, it inspired everyone to work towards it. And he said, suddenly we had 150 people all pointing the same direction. And he said, that was the most valuable thing. He said, I saw it happen. It happened, you know, in a few minutes, the moment that you articulated the opportunity, it changed everything. And, you know, since then we've been conscious of saying, you know what, actually that's a really important thing. Of course that is, you know, that's an important thing to do in your work is to actually articulate the opportunity and not only the problem, right? To say, look, here's what happens if we do this. You know, like if we do this and we succeed, how is the world different? You know, what could happen if we accomplish this and what could we accomplish? And I like to say that when you lock in, you also lock out. So the moment that you lock in on what you're going to do, you're also locking out everything else. Right? So when you define what you're going to work on. You're defining the scope of the opportunity. You're defining the biggest thing that you can accomplish. So you're locking out anything else that's bigger. And so that early part of the project, 
that first part where you don't know what you're going to do, you don't know what the problem is, you don't know what the solution is, certainly, that is so valuable as a kind of time in the work where you can really explore possibility. And I love that. I love that work. I love to be there. I love it before we have a contract, you know, before we know that we're going to get paid. You know, I, the, I love that moment where we don't know. And it's a moment where you can actually really think freely about what could happen and think about the problem and think about, you know, what we could change and how we could do things differently. And for me, that is such an important moment in the work. And Mark was absolutely right. It's how we work. You know, it really is how we work. And once you get it, once you see it, you know, it's easy from there. You know, I mean, it's not easy, but it's a lot of work. But once you get that, it's really exciting. When we were working in Panama with E.O. Wilson on the Panama Museum of Biodiversity, for the world's first museum of biodiversity, we went into the jungle with E.O. Wilson and he explained that uh, there's only one thing on the planet and that's life. And life has an experiment going in form and we're one of those forms. And you know, 99, over 99% of all the experiments have gone extinct. So less than 1% of all the forms that ever existed now exist. And, you know, we're living through another one of the mass extinctions. Many of those are going to go extinct. We may be one of those and life goes on. Life will go on. And he said, rock is slow life. And life is fast rock, that you are rock animated with electricity. And when we turn that electricity off, you go back to rock, you know, you return to the earth and that's all it is. There's an endless cycle. And the sooner that we get that concept into our way of thinking, into our cosmology, into our way of understanding the universe, into our way of working, the sooner that we'll start to actually do things that have a plausible future. The way we are working now, you know, we're just drawing down our future, you know, we're drawing down the resources of the earth. You know, I would say for me, one of the, probably the best thing I've done in my life is marrying BC Williams. I, I think doing that well is probably the best thing you can do. BC has been so important in, and I've seen it in other people, you know, Frank Gehry is married to Berta. Berta is the voice. I, you know, I've seen her so often say, Frank, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, like, like, don't do that. And also, you know, we were very close friends with Kosha and Klaus, Kosha van Bergen and Klaus Oldenburg, who just passed away. And Kosha was so important to Klaus, you know, like he, Kosha was there and, you know, she was also a very important artist herself. And so I think that foundation is really like, in my case, you know, BC has been a partner in everything, uh, all this time. And that's why we were able to have such an incredible life and do the work that we we're able to do. When I discovered what happens when you put images and words together, I just fell in love with that. Something else happens. You know, it's not images and it's not words. It's something else. And that's something else, you know, is design and. I just was completely seduced by it as soon as I started doing it and I was like, and I'm still doing it. 
And you know, it's funny because I received the AIGA gold medal for design, which is kind of like the Lifetime Achievement Award. And I don't really do too much of that anymore. I'm a big fan of Marshall McLuhan. And McLuhan really talked about, and he wrote about uh, typography as a medium and how it shapes the mind and how it shapes what we experience and shapes how we see things. And so I think of typography as a window that you look through. And so you look through the typography at the content. You don't see the shape of the window, but the shape of the window determines what you see. So you're not looking at the window, right? you're looking through the window, but it, it's coloring, shaping what you see. But most people are not conscious of it. You know, they don't realize this was McLuhan's great kind of thesis that they don't realize that it's working you over, right? That's why he called it the medium is the massage. He didn't actually say the medium is the message. What would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I would like them to know that you know, in my own case that I did as much as I possibly could have, I can't say that, say the same for my generation. You know, we made a lot of mistakes, but more in a way, more importantly, I would like them to know just how powerful they are, that they have the power to shape the world. At some point I realized that the world is produced. The world is designed and produced. And since we design and produce it, we can redesign it and you can play a part in designing it. You can play a part in that production. It doesn't have to happen to you. And I think for too many people, you know, too much power and too much control is concentrated in too few hands. People need to have the power to control and design their own life. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in the creative process or One Planet podcast, or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.